Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, today, I'd like to move a little bit into the world of philosophy, but I kind of want to do another episode where I sort of tie the two disciplines together. Uh, as we go through these, I sort of been going back and forth between philosophy and literature, and I'm sure there are some people that are wondering why am I talking about these two seemingly very different topics. Um, but the more you get into them, the more you realize they are tied together in many, many ways. Um, when One of the questions that you will be asked frequently if you ever become a liberal arts major and major in philosophy or literature or both, as I did, um, you'll have the question over and over again, uh, what, what good is a liberal arts degree? Uh, what can you do with it? Uh, and a lot of people treat this as kind of a dismissal of this type of degree and say, this is absolutely worthless. How do you translate this into real dollars? Um, and the question is sort of one that is a loaded question because it's a question that is built on the assumption that value is only dollar value uh, and that there is nothing else in life of value except money and making money. <clears throat> now, if this is true, uh, wealthiest the wealthy people should be the happiest people on the planet. And as it turns out, we've talked about this before, the more money people make sometimes, oftentimes, frequently, uh, the less happy they become. You know, people who start out with nothing and think money's going to cure all of their ills get all kinds of money and then end up killing themselves intentionally or accidentally through drugs and alcohol or reckless behaviors. So there's sort of this uh, belief that everything must be tied to the dollar somehow. So one of the things I want to do is kind of step back from that and, and talk a little bit about where literature and philosophy have value uh, even more so than things that might bring you lots of money. Uh, first of all, start starting out with philosophy. Um, philosophy is the basis of everything about human life. There is nothing about your life today or the lives of people in the past that um, wasn't almost entirely decided by philosophy. Now, philosophy wasn't always a formal study. It wasn't always a formal discipline, but that doesn't mean there weren't philosophies there. Um, as soon as we started um, creating more advanced societies, these societies were built on philosophies, concepts of who should lead, how should they lead, um, what should be the division of the sexes, what should be the division of power, what should be, you know, uh, how we value things as far as um, what things are worth a lot, what things are not worth a lot. You know, once we got beyond the stage of, okay, we can eat enough so we're not going to die, uh, and we start building societies more complex than that, um, you start to get philosophy coming up. You know, should we be hunter-gatherers and keep following the herds and gathering what food we can find, or should we use this new technology and start farming? and settle down, build cities. You know, these are philosophies. These are things that shaped the way people live. <clears throat> um, political systems, economic systems, uh, religion, ethics, uh, social customs, uh, 
you know, culture, uh, all of these are based on philosophy. Uh, even genetics, uh, believe it or not, is largely based on philosophy. You know, if you wonder why certain uh, uh, groups have certain traits that other groups don't have or don't have as pronounced of, it has to do with a philosophy of aesthetics and a philosophy of reproduction. Um, people who were seen to have the more attractive uh, characteristics, whatever those happened to be by the particular group, tended to uh, gain more partners, mated more, had more offspring, and those traits started to be reinforced through breeding. Uh, who got to breed more, who who had traits that nobody wanted, and so those people bred less. Um, that's that's a philosophy. That's that's a philosophy of aesthetics. Again, this is not a philosophy that people sat down and you know worked out uh, in, in any kind of uh, systematic official way. But these are still philosophies. You know, the concept of sciences all came from philosophy. Every science begins as a branch of philosophy. Um, <clears throat> there's natural philosophy, philosophy of mind, alchemy. There's, you know, all of these very economics, political science, uh, the social sciences. These all start in philosophy. Um, and so all of these things are what shaped every society into what it becomes. You know, even the concept we've talked about in power systems. We talked about why does money have value? You know, what were the power systems and how did they come about? This is all based on philosophy. This is all the basis of everything. So now ask yourself again this question. What good does, what value is there in studying philosophy? Well, the value in it is that you can look from a different perspective at the way everything's done. And when you look at it from a more objective perspective, you can start to look at some of the things and say, yeah, these things make a lot of sense over here and we, we should definitely keep doing these things, but why in the world are we doing these other things over here that seem uh, to be not only uh, destructive but silly and, and don't help us in any way? But you can't come to these realizations unless you kind of step back and really consciously uh, take notes of philosophy if you if you don't examine it if you don't examine different philosophies you know this is one of the things where um, <clears throat> people in power always want you to get all of your information from them why they want to control the philosophy you're exposed to um, because if you come in contact with the way some other group does it well their way might be better and so you might move over to that group instead. So philosophy not only becomes the basis of everything, but the control of that philosophy becomes essential for the people in power. If they want to stay there, they better control what you're thinking about. This is why philosophers were often seen as, um, you know, dangerous and troublemakers. Uh, going all the way back to Socrates, Socrates was um, sentenced to death and told to drink hemlock. Um, because he was seen as corrupting the youth. He was seen as someone who was a disturber of the peace. <clears throat> now, literature. How does literature also play into the way things are? Well, literature 
in a lot of ways sort of is the philosophy for the people. It's the philosophy the way most people get it and the way most people absorb it. You know, think about stories, uh, even children's stories. Uh, we've talked about this, you know, they were always put together to have a reason behind them. You know, in Little Red Riding Hood, she goes off and talks to the wolf and then gets eaten in the original story. Why? Because you're not supposed to talk to strangers. So our view of reality is much more shaped by our literary forms than we realize. Um, then, you know, as literature goes on, you start to get, you know, musical forms and uh, plays and then eventually, you know, television, movies, things like that. And these things become even more encompassing. Think about how much your life is shaped by the things you watch and listen to. You know, how much of what you feel is, uh, should be your life's goal has been determined by movies you've seen, songs you've heard, books you've read. You know, and this isn't something that you take in consciously. This is something that just sort of is there. And the more these ideas sometimes become uh, repeated, the more likely they are to take hold. And so this is one of the reasons that mainstream uh, entertainments uh, generally tend to promote things that uh, are the uh, things that the people in power would prefer you have. We talked a little bit about music and the changes in music. You know, the old folk songs. Um, these were songs that were very much uh, criticizing uh, capitalism the way it was. Uh, this isn't some crazy foreign, you know, communist that was writing up all of these songs from another country. These were songs that were written by farmers and miners and, you know, uh, people working in factories. These were made by the common people. Uh, and these songs often had a lot of messages about, you know, the inequalities going on, the persecutions, the day-to-day uh, -day struggles that regular people were having. <clears throat> and so this tradition, which is also taken up by a lot in academics of kind of criticizing society, was actually kind of moving along in two places at the same time. But one of the um, problems that occurred was that there was sort of this demonization between the two groups. They sort of naturally distrusted and demonized each other, even though when you look at their ideas, they were really moving towards the same thing. They were really criticizing injustices. Um, but they saw, each side saw themselves as, well, those people don't know what they're talking about. Those people are, you know, academics, they're eggheads, who wants to listen to an egghead, or those people are just, you know, country rubes, what do they know about anything? And so you get this animosity that is is encouraged, even, um, by the wealthy. Um, and it's encouraged so that these two groups don't really slow down and get together and say, hey, wait a minute, we're kind of rowing in the same direction, we're going towards the same things. Um <clears throat> As you move more into the era of popular music, of music that is put out by record companies, 
what happens with a lot of the music is you get a lot of the sounds that were popular uh, in the folk music and in blues and in other forms of music, but the content completely changes. It goes to things that are more uh, acceptable in the fact that they're not challenging the system as it is. So you have folk music moving into country music. And a lot of the themes in country music are love and heartbreak and things like this, which has the sounds of the old folk music, but it's completely changed the message. It's no longer about workers standing together. It's no more about fighting inequality. It's it's a much more uh, commercialized and safe message. Um, so you get this happening in all of the different styles of music and all of the different styles of art uh, and all of the, um, you know, presses. There were a lot of um, presses, you know, the newspapers and journals and magazines and flyers and things like that that were put out by regular people. These weren't put out by large publishing companies, by large newspapers and magazines and media empires. In fact, uh, the majority of newspapers at one time were put out by working men and women. They put these papers out to kind of talk about their difficulties, talk about their challenges, talk about the things that were going on in their community, ways they were being taken advantage of, things that they might do to stop this. Well, <clears throat> as time goes on, you get larger and larger media companies that kind of squeeze all of these out. So when you get to where we are now, 90% of the media that you consume is put out by a very few people. These people are extremely wealthy. 90% uh, of the media worldwide is put out by less than 10 companies. Um, and so you have a very small number uh, basically controlling everything that's what's thought of as the news. You know, this is this is what we talk about, this is what we don't talk about. Earlier today I posted an essay on my um, website about kind of the uh, illusion that we have in the United States of we have a left and right party and a left and right media. We do not have a left and right political party, we do not have a left and right media. Uh, you know, the, the right likes to say, oh, we have a uh, extreme liberal media, the radical left, um, about the media and about the political party. Um, and the, uh, the supposed left, you know, sort of fights back and says, these guys are the extreme right. Well, if you actually look at the policies of both parties, uh, Democrat and Republican, you're going to see that the Democrats are basically a right-of-center conservative party. Yes, they're more liberal on social issues, but if you look at the mainstream focus of the Democratic Party, it is pro-big bank, pro-big business, um, you know, pro-corporation, uh, and it really takes the interests of the wealthy into uh, consideration above all else. And then the other party, the Republican Party, is the far right-wing party, uh, and they uh, are more, much more open about taking these interests of business, and they tend to be uh, more socially conservative. But these social issues that they uh, 
play on, they put them out there because one, these will they know that these will never be a challenge to big business and corporate and big banking. Um, and two, they know it's a way of polarizing people so that they fight back and forth and think they're actually moving things, that they're actually changing things, when actually they're only affecting things a very little bit and in ways that are never, um, never going to challenge the power of uh, those who have it and never challenge the way things are. So they won't ever get to the root of solving any issues. <clears throat> when they talk about the left and right media, again, we don't have a left and right media. We have a right-wing media, and then we have a far right-wing media in the United States. And the reason that they're both right-wing is that you never hear any of them talking about any issues that challenge the way things are. I've never heard a discussion about, um, you know, dismantling the top-down power system. I've never heard a discussion about uh, reforming the economy so that instead of being based on money and stock markets, it's based on what the real economy is uh, made of, which is, you know, resources, labor, and technology. You know, these discussions don't even occur. They're not even on the map. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you think uh, that when they point to somebody and say this person was a liberal, for example, they point to Obama and say, you know, Obama was a radical liberal on the left. Uh, if you look at his policies that he actually uh, not only put into place but tried to put into place, uh, I challenge you to find one that's even slightly on the left. Uh, these are all pro-big business policies. These are all policies that propped up the banks when they needed it, propped up the corporations when they needed it. Um, you know, they never put any regulation on them. Uh, his health care reform was not, you know, radical socialism like the Republicans like to call it. These were all Republican ideas. Uh, different Republicans had come up with different parts and put different parts of this in place. Uh, so these were all... Um, Republican ideas, and they were all ideas that supported the insurance companies. You know, at, at the bottom of it, they still wanted to make sure and help the insurance companies make a profit. Now, had he been an actual liberal on the left, uh, his goal would have been national health care, um, which is not such a crazy, radical idea from the left, considering most other countries in the world already have it and have had it for decades. Um, and so the fact that he said, that Obama said, this is not even on, you know, single payer and you know, national health care is not even on the table, uh, should have let you know that he wasn't on the left. Um, he was still on the right, not as far as the Republicans, but still on the right. Um, and as, <clears throat> so going through the media and going through the political parties, we kind of see that they're skewed. But you don't really see this unless you really start analyzing them, unless you really start looking at uh, these ideas without fear. You know, someone throws out the word socialism now and everybody panics and heads for the hills because it's a scary idea. And I talked about this in just, you know, several uh, podcasts ago, that socialism in this country is basically things like parks and roads and schools and, you know, 40-hour work week and vacations and uh, Social Security and all of these things that kind of 
make life uh, worth living. And it's even things that have like that are like corporate bailouts and banking bailouts. Those are also socialism. But see, since we've been so terrified of that idea, because it's been connected to Russia, it's been connected to China and these other countries that really didn't even use the idea of what it was supposed to be. Um, we don't even have those discussions. We've been scared away from those discussions. Um, <clears throat> so this is, these podcasts and these uh, essays that I've been putting out are kind of bringing ideas out. I'm not putting it forward that, you know, I know the one way to go and everybody's got to follow me. Uh, that That's not the purpose of these. The purpose of these is to start bringing out ideas that people may not have thought of and ideas that you can explore more on your own. And some of these ideas you may decide, yes, this is a good idea. Or you may decide, this is a good idea if I tweak it a little bit. Or you may decide, no, I don't like this idea at all. But you can't decide that until you start having the exposure and until you start thinking of them in, okay, it's okay to think about these ideas. It's not... You know, I'm, I'm not committing some uh, mortal sin by uh, thinking about these and talking about these. Uh, one of the biggest things that has kind of uh, pushed Americans to where we are is the sort of demonization of thinking. The idea that uh, smart people are bad people necessarily, or thinking too much is a bad thing, or discussing politics is not polite. Uh, in, in a country that's supposed to be a representative country, these ideas are absolutely contrary to what a representative country should be. We should absolutely be talking about ideas. We should absolutely be talking about politics. Because in a representative country, we make those decisions. And we've kind of been bullied and misled into thinking, well, no, that's just decisions that the Republicans and the Democrats make. And, you know, we got to vote for one or the other and whatever they say goes. And, you know, that's that's the best they're going to give us. And that's the best we can do. Um, We've gotten from where it's representative to where we work for them. And that is never the way a representative country should work. You know, one of my biggest gripes against the government is they have the idea we work for them and they are in charge. This is 100% the wrong way of viewing this relationship. They work for us, we are in charge. Um, They need to be taking into account all of us, all of our needs, um, all of the diverse groups, uh, not just the few that can give them the millions to get them reelected, which is basically what we have now. When When you push away and give up your right to talk about politics and your right to talk about it in uh, mature ways, you know, where you're not just name calling. Um, You have to, we have to kind of re-get to the point where we can have differences of opinion without it going into, you're an idiot. No, you're an idiot. Uh, This is not something that ever gets us anywhere. Uh, Because one of the things I've learned from studying philosophy and studying lots of different ideas from lots of different time periods is I've never read a single philosopher that I agreed with 100%. Um, I've agreed with them on many areas, and then there were other areas that I looked at and said, no, they completely messed that up. 
and, and that's a healthy way of looking at knowledge. That's a healthy way of looking at debate. And we need to get back into those uh, if, if we ever want to kind of push things in a better direction. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to break off for, uh, for now on that. Uh, and I hope all of you are still staying safe and doing well. And I will talk to you all again really soon. Have a good night.